Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. And we're back. Welcome to Season 2 of the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I want to apologize for the somewhat abrupt way in which our first uh, season ended. I had originally planned on releasing a, another episode, and things kind of got busy and then got crazy, and uh, here we are. So it was good to take a little hiatus from the podcast, but I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, for those of you tuning in for the first time or haven't listened in a while, I'm Dr. Lance Meller. I'm as always, thrilled that you're tuning in and listening to our uh, podcast this week. We've got a great interview this episode with Dr. Adam Schulhoff, and we'll get into that in a minute. I want to take a second to point out that you can visit us on our website, elevateorthopodcast.com, where you can see an archive and show notes of all of our past episodes. We also have a Facebook group at Elevate Orthodontics Podcast, where there's uh, some discussion following some of the episodes, and many of the guests are members of that group. So if you have questions for them, follow up. Uh, that's a good place to post those and hopefully uh, have some discussion on the topics covered in the podcast. I'd encourage you to subscribe. You can do that via iTunes. Uh, you can search for us in the iTunes store or any other podcasting application. And that way you're sure not to miss any episodes as we go along. As I look forward to the next batch of interviews here, I want to thank all of you listeners who have submitted suggestions and names for guests for future episodes. I think we've got some great ones coming up. If you ever have any ideas or people who you think might be good on the show, please send me a message. Let me know on Facebook. Shoot me an email. Uh, I'd be uh, happy to consider anyone else and to bring any sort of interesting stories, interesting perspectives, whatever it is that we can uh, share with each other in the interest of learning and improving ourselves uh, would be fantastic. Before we jump into the interview today, I want to do a book review. And uh, the book that I want to talk about this week is probably my top book for 2017. The book is called Making Money is Killing Your Business by Chuck Blakeman. Uh, you can find it on Amazon or wherever, but the, again, the title, Making Money is Killing Your Business. This is probably my favorite book from the year. I read a ton of books, and if I'm totally honest, I usually don't finish them all the way, but this book I have read through almost twice, uh, cover to cover. Uh, just a fantastic book. And the premise of the book is that as we focus on making money in our business, we run into some problems. Um, the first is that as we become more and more successful in our businesses and in our practices, that usually just ends up meaning more work for ourselves. And I think we can all relate to that. You know, many of us who started with smaller practices or even startup practices, who only saw a couple of patients a day, then find ourselves several years later seeing dozens, if not, uh, you know, hundreds of patients uh, per day or per week, and uh, all of the associated staff burdens and administrative responsibilities. Uh, sometimes I think we wonder what we've gotten ourselves into. And this book is really trying to address this issue uh, that more success in business often 
just leads to more work. But it doesn't have to be that way. Um, part of the problem is that we're all constantly focused on making money, as the title of the book implies. And as we focus on money, that usually means we're focused on the day-to-day. How many starts can we get today? Uh, what do we need for our overhead? What are, what are the things that we can do to actually generate a profit in this month or in this quarter? And uh, Mr. Blakeman points out that there's a couple of problems with this thinking of focusing on money. The first of which, and I think we all know this, uh, is that money in and of itself doesn't actually make us happy. And he goes through some good examples of of why that is the case. And certainly uh, that's a topic that's kind of been discussed in great detail in other places. But money in and of itself is not a goal. Uh, Sometimes it's a way of keeping score, but I don't think it's actually going to make us happy. Another problem is that as we focus on money, uh, our focus tends to be on what uh, Blakeman calls the tyranny of the urgent. And this harkens back a little bit to almost a Stephen Covey principle, that we're focused on the tyranny of the urgent, things that are demanding our attention, the crises, uh, the uh, starts today, the uh, performance this month. And as we focus on short-term goals, we don't have as much time for the long-term things, the, the priority of the important, uh, what are the things that we can do to set ourselves up, to put systems in place, to plan for the long run. And the third thing, as we've kind of already mentioned, is that focusing on money just tends to increase the speed of the treadmill. The author here talks about uh, how when we start a business and we build that business around ourselves, and certainly in orthodontics that's the case, we're the doctor, we're the main focus, Uh, we put ourselves on this treadmill, and as we add more and more and more patience to our practice, the speed of that treadmill just starts to increase until we kind of reach a breaking point where we're we're running frantically just to keep up with our business, and and, and we are kind of slaves to our business as opposed to the business uh, serving us. So, what is the solution here? The book spends a lot of time trying to kind of work this all backwards in order to get us in a mindset and in a situation where the business can serve us and not the other way around. Blakeman says that your business should produce both money and time uh, for the owner, that um, a a mature business uh, produces money and time and that it improves the lifestyle of the owner. So there's lots of examples and exercises to help you understand, first, what your lifetime goals are, second, what lifestyle you need to support those goals, and then finally, how your business can deliver you the time and money to support your desired lifestyle. So kind of figuring out what's important to you and working your way backwards and realizing that as the business owner, you have the right to set your business up in a way that really meets your needs and the needs of your family. What's the real reason you're in business? Find your purpose, your significance. You want to make contributions to your community and realizing that having a mature business will allow us to achieve those goals and not just kind of be running around uh, like crazy every day. So as you read this book, you'll be able to develop a strategic plan to help you dual track uh, is, is a term that's used to, to dual track both the tyranny of the urgent. Obviously, we can't ignore the crises that come at us on a day-to-day basis, but also have enough time for the priority of the important. So we've got the tyranny of the urgent and the priority of the important, and we're working on both of those so we can build a mature business. And building a mature business isn't just about selling it. Uh, you know, we're in, I think, in orthodontics, uh, many of us anticipate hopefully having long careers in this profession. Some may be looking to make an eventual sale. But the focus of this book is really about building a business that serves you, creates the lifestyle you want. It's about building a platform for significance that allows you to serve your community. 
and to give you the freedom to travel, golf, volunteer, whatever else uh, you want to do that takes time and money, and it's about creating freedom and choice. So I highly recommend this book, Making Money is Killing Your Business. And uh, with that, we will get back into another great interview. Thanks again for tuning in. I anticipate getting back on a more regular schedule here for episodes. Send me your thoughts, questions, concerns, comments. I'd love to hear from you guys. Have a great week, and let's do this. Dr. Adam Schulhoff graduated from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey and received his specialty training at Columbia University. His interest in lingual orthodontics has led his to his bec- his interest in lingual orthodontics has led to his becoming a top provider for incognito in the United States and the world. Dr. Schulhoff was part of the Lingual Care Clinical Advisory Board and is now a key opinion leader for 3M and Incognito. He has presented lectures on lingual orthodontics throughout the United States and worldwide. Dr. Schulhoff is also active in research and development and was a major contributor to the development of Incognito Light. Dr. Schulhoff is the owner of Schulhoff Center for Orthodontics in Ordell, New Jersey. Later, he also opened a satellite practice in Manhattan focused on aesthetics and adult orthodontics. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast, Dr. Schulhoff. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Adam, we talked a little bit about skiing and, and snowboarding. Uh, before we started the interview here, but I'm, I'm curious, do you have any uh, summer hobbies you're involved in? Oh my goodness. Uh, I love just about anything outdoors. Uh, I know everybody thinks I'm, I'm a city slicker, but uh, I love hiking and biking and kayaking. Just this weekend, I went kayaking with my kids. Um, you know, just if I can get outdoors, I'm there. Sweet. And there's a lot of that fairly close to where you guys are? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Upstate New York is ripe with it. Great. So let's start a little bit talking about your first practice. Uh, you mentioned to me that that you started up this practice with a pediatric dentist and that you even started building it during your residency. Uh, that sounds like there's a story there. Maybe you could tell our audience about that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, this is back uh, when I was a young man, I should say, right? <laughs> um, 2003, <laughs> uh, I was at the time in my residency at Columbia and I was working with an orthodontist, uh, I would say one of my mentors, his name is Dr. Sheldon Waltuck in New Jersey, and he approached me one day and he said, you know, by the way, Adam, you're about a year into your residency and we love having you here. And I know that in the back of your mind, you're thinking about, you know, the future, obviously, as as every resident does. And he goes, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. First of all, I'm not going to hire you. And second of all, you've got to open up on your own. (laughs) And I looked at him, I didn't know if I should be insulted or what. And he's like, He's like, we're too similar. Like, you need to be your own boss. You have your own ideas of of where to take, uh, you know, orthodontics as far as, you know, your universe of orthodontics. You know, at the time, I was very, pretty heavily involved with the beginnings of uh, Invisalign and was fooling around with a little bit of lingual in my in my residency program. And, you know, he was a little bit more of an old timer. And he's like, you just have these ideas and you, I want you to take your ideas and, and just run with them. And he's like, you got to start just looking for a space and opening up on your own. And it's very scary, especially, you know, I haven't, I hadn't been out yet. I hadn't been, you know, an associate anywhere. And all of us as residents were thinking about, okay, we get somewhat of an education in our residency, but you know what it's like, right? It's, you know, you see a couple of patients a day. It's not the real world. And even working in, in his office, you know, one day a week, it still wasn't that real taste of, you know, mentorship where somebody's you know, watching you day in and day out, and you're seeing a full load of 
90 patients a day, et cetera. So we're always looking for that mentor and that practice where, you know, you've got somebody maybe 15, 20 years ahead of you that can show you the ropes. So it's scary. And looking at him and, and him telling me this and being completely honest with me, I started thinking about it and I started being honest with myself. And I was like, you know, not to sound uh, like the spoiled brat child, but yeah, I don't want to work for anybody else. I want to be my own man. I want to kind of create my own destiny. And so I realized that, you know what, I've got to do this on my own. And so I started looking for some space. And it's a little bit tough in the tri-state area around New York City, but, you know, my family was around here. And at the time, my, my wife didn't want to move anywhere. So we were really, really looking in the, in the hub of, of where everybody was. And for those of you guys that know New York City, there's an orthodontist pretty much on every corner. And not just New York City, but New Jersey, the tri-state area. And as I was really thinking about this, it kind of hit me that perhaps it would be beneficial to, to at the time, open up a pedo-ortho practice. And I had some friends who were going through their pediatric residency. And I was thinking, hmm, if I can really get together with one of these guys and open up a pedo-ortho, I can kind of have the best of both worlds where I can develop my own practice, but at the same time, not have to worry as much day one about where am I getting these patients from. And that's exactly what I did. So I got together with a buddy of mine who actually I went to dental school with, and he was in a program, uh, Montefiore, which was, you know, just a, uh, probably about 10 minute drive from where I was in my program. And I said, Hey, what are you thinking about after you graduate? And he really didn't have a clue. It was difficult for pediatric dentists at that point in time as well. Uh, there weren't a lot of pedos that were retiring and there weren't a lot of jobs out there unless you wanted to work in a Medicaid clinic. And I said, why don't we open up together? And we just kind of went with it. And so we were in our second year, him of pedo and, and myself of ortho, that we found a space, negotiated a lease, and actually started construction. So we started construction about eight months prior to even graduating, which I guess was a good thing for anybody that's gone through construction. It never really goes uh, as scheduled and on time. And uh, we pretty much graduated and stepped into our practice the very next day. Wow. And how has that worked out, the, the pedo-ortho relationship? So it's interesting. It's a fantastic relationship, but I was young and uh, naive, I guess. I didn't think it all through. Because when you consider a pediatric dentist starting off from scratch, their patient population is probably going to be about three to four years old at most. Because okay. the seven-year-olds, the 10-year-olds, they've already got their, their doctors. They've already got their dentists and their pediatric dentists. And so, whereas I thought, okay, I'm going to open up with pedo. You know, the very next day, we can start seeing whoever went to the pediatric dentist can come along to the orthodontist. It's great. You know, one hand shakes the other and we're all good. Unfortunately. I was sitting around and playing a lot of Minesweeper in the beginning because this was pre-Facebook. And so now these days, what do we do when we have our downtime? Not that a lot of us have any downtime, but we're on our different Facebook forums and everything else. Unfortunately, in those days, there wasn't any Facebook, so it was Minesweeper and, uh, <laughs> right, and Solitaire. Um, and I realized very quickly that I really needed to get up and get out and start uh, shaking some branches, right? And, and start knocking on some doors and doing the muffin runs and things like that. And what had happened was as I was doing that, what I discovered was that unfortunately, having the pedo relationship and building this practice from scratch, and obviously we built something that was really, really nice and, uh, you know, 
knew a lot of the general dentists were a little bit wary to refer patients. They were worried that, hey, if I refer my 7, my 10, my 12-year-old to you, they're going to see your beautiful new office and unfortunately, they're going to say to you, hey, we want to go see your pediatric dentist. And they were scared that they were going to lose them as patients. And of course, we talked them through it and said, hey, you know what, we would never steal your patient and this is the way it's going to be. But nevertheless, it was, it was a difficult sell. And so sure. at the time, you know, about six months into this practice, we were quite slow and I realized I've got to start, uh, you know, doing something just a little bit differently. And I started deciding to, uh, to advertise directly to consumers. And this was back in 2003. And I know a lot of us do a lot of this now, but back then it was frowned upon to say the least. You know, it was cliche. It was cheesy. And so I started thinking about really where industries are going and where everything's heading. And I said to myself, if I can go direct to consumer and give them something that they want, perhaps I can start developing some momentum and building a practice lateral to the pediatric patients that eventually are going to come to me. And naturally, my thoughts kind of lent themselves towards adult orthodontics. Um, when I was in my residency, you know, Invisalign was just at its infancy, and we were doing a lot of it, including some beta testing for Invisalign. And so naturally, they were dumping a lot of money into marketing and to direct consumer marketing. And I figured, let's get on that bandwagon. And so we started doing that and actually had some pretty nice results with a lot of adults starting to flood the practice. We were one of the first in the area to A, direct-to-consumer market, B, direct-to-consumer market to adults, and C, to even talk about Invisalign back then. And very soon, I developed a pretty nice adult following within this practice. The issues that came about, though, were that this was in the infancy of Invisalign, and as we've all been there and done that, Back then, we didn't know what we were doing with plastic. You know, we didn't understand the biomechanics of plastic. We were just thinking that it was going to move teeth the same way brackets and wires move teeth. And so we were dealing ultimately with frustrated patients and obviously a frustrated doctor myself. And I started leaning towards lingual orthodontics. Back when I was in my residency, I've got to give a shout out to my mentor, uh, Dr. Nicolay, who's now actually not in Columbia anymore. He's in, he's in NYU. And he is a French orthodontist and he performed a lot of different types of lingual orthodontics on his patients over the years. And when I was in Columbia, I hung out in the faculty practice often trying to kind of pick his brain and uh, understand lingual orthodontics. At the time, he would push me away. He was like, there's enough labial orthodontics that you guys have to understand before you even delve into lingual orthodontics. But I pushed and I pushed and I insisted and he, he let me uh, kind of sit at his knees and glean a little bit of, of that knowledge. And so as we were trying to make these adult patients happy with clear aligners back in the day, and it wasn't quite working out the way we wanted to, I said, you know what, we've got we've to dig a little bit deeper and, and jump into some more lingual orthodontics. And in the US at the time, there wasn't a lot available as far as education on lingual orthodontics. And so I actually traveled to Germany where I had heard that there was a doctor of the name of uh, Dr. Wiekman who was not just performing a lot of lingual orthodontics but also developing a new system. And so I went to Germany a number of occasions and hung out and learned a lot from him and then came back to the U.S. and started doing what is now known as incognito but back then we would call it eye braces. And 
this was really a huge turning point for my practice because finally I was able to give my adult patients, who at the time I started really developing a large adult following, I was able to give them what they wanted with something that was completely invisible. And I was able to also keep them happy with the results and, of course, keep myself happy with, uh, with actually obtaining some very good results. I don't think there's a ton of orthodontists that are jumping into lingual. So if, if, if you could envision a doctor who that's not even on their radar, let's say, you know, really make the case for why someone would want to introduce that technique into their practice. That's perfect, perfect uh, opening to to uh, what I would say most of of the doctors that have emailed me over the last two years or so uh, have asked. You know, they're like, "Hey, we're kind of interested in this. We've heard a little bit about it." We know, you know, there's a lot of older orthodontists who have, quote unquote, been there and done that and uh, ultimately given up on it. Why would we even entertain? So just to give you a little background on, on lingual, because I don't know if it's common knowledge. So back, think about the early 80s. I mean, really 79, 80, right? 1980, where the biggest breakthrough in orthodontics was actually bonding. Right before that, we were banding all of our our brackets. So right. uh, around 1979, 1980, we came out with you know resins to bond, and we started bonding brackets to teeth. And there was an orthodontist by the name of Craven Kurz who was actually in Beverly Hills, and he said to himself, "Wait a minute, if I can bond to the front of a tooth, why couldn't I bond to the back of the tooth?" And he was he had a very affluent practice in Beverly Hills. He was treating a lot of stars and a lot of you know people in, in the media, and he's like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to develop something completely different, completely hidden behind the teeth, and uh, bonding is the big breakthrough for me. I can just do the same thing as I do on the labial aspect. I can do it on the lingual. And he actually, this story actually goes a little bit sideways because he was actually treating two Playboy bunnies at the time. <laughs> and these two Playboy bunnies were being interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine and and the reporter as he was interviewing them about a Playboy article was kind of like wait a minute what's what's going on in in your mouth and they were like oh these are our braces and he's like what are you talking about show me and they open up and and there are their lingual braces by Dr. Kurz and this reporter is so enamored by this concept of lingual braces that he develops an entire article about lingual orthodontics, the future of orthodontics, how no longer do you have to have train tracks for braces, and this gets picked up by media throughout the United States. And Ormco gets a hold of this and says, wow, this is genius, reaches out to Craven and starts developing a lingual task force and, and you know, lecturing, you know, uh, schedules and things like that. The crazy part of this is it spreads like wildfire from, 19, from 1980 to about 1983, but at the time, he had not even finished a single case. Okay, so, I mean, unfortunately, this is kind of like a, a lot of the stuff that's, you know, direct to consumer or direct to orthodontic marketing these days without any kind of scientific evidence or not a, lot, not a lot of cases treated. So here we are, we've got thousands of orthodontists across the U.S. being taught how to do this new lingual appliance system, but nothing's been finished. And as these cases are starting to attempt to be finished, what they're starting to realize is, oh my goodness, this is nothing like labial orthodontics. And at the time, they weren't even clear as far as why things are going wrong. Um, you know, biomechanically, 
it's completely different. You're at a completely different point of force when you start considering what your center of resistance of the tooth is instead of in front of it, you're behind it. it it's just so very, very different. And you have now hundreds, possibly thousands of cases that are just not treating out well. Well, now we are, you know, fast forward, we're in 1983, 84. What's the next breakthrough that happens? It's ceramic brackets. And so you have all of these orthodontists that were trained on lingual having a really, really rough time finishing because the biomechanics just weren't there. And now suddenly there's clear brackets on the market and they just swap out all of their lingual cases to ceramic, decide lingual doesn't work. We're going to go with ceramic. That's the new aesthetic option. All right. Yeah. And thus is what we would call the first death of lingual orthodontics in the US. So you have now orthodontists that were practicing in the 80s who are now the faculty of today's orthodontists telling everybody as they went through their residency, lingual is a pain in the neck. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't work. I'm sorry. It hurts. It doesn't work. Your patients will never speak properly. You know, back in the day, those brackets were extremely bulky. The biomechanics were all wrong. Um, it was just a, a vastly different product than the lingual of today. So you have this unfortunate uh, situation where you have now, and I don't know if you remember in your residency, if anybody ever mentioned lingual, chances are some faculty said, oh my God, forget it. Don't even touch lingual with a 10 foot pole. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's just the way it's been, um, unfortunately, for, for many, many years. But what tends to happen today, even though we do have technology that is vastly superior to what we had in the 80s, especially with Incognito and some other systems out there, is that we still have a product that takes a little bit more effort. And the interesting thing to me is that Invisalign is, is huge. I mean, nobody can deny what it's done for our industry. And we can argue whether it was good or it was bad. Ultimately, I think it's fantastic. Not that, you know... You know, some people will say, oh, my God, you're the lingual guy. What are you talking about? What what Invisalign has done for us, for orthodontists as a whole, is that it's opened up an entirely new patient population to us. When I started treating adults back in 2003, I, you know, even though my practice was heavily, heavily adult oriented, I still had, you know, adults trickling through the door. So even if it became 40% of my practice, 50% of my practice still wasn't, you know, your three, 400 patient office at the time. But today we have almost every mom in some kind of treatment or almost, you know, I would say 50% of dads because Invisalign has done a tremendous job of marketing to consumers and actually getting them to think about whether it's function or aesthetics. And we can argue about all of that. So I think Invisalign is a great thing. But back in the day when Invisalign started, for those of anybody out there that, that was doing Invisalign from 2000 to 2005, let's be honest, it was terrible. And mm -hmm. whether we blame it on the aligners, we blame it on the fact that we didn't know that we needed attachments, we didn't know the biomechanics, it was terrible. But as an appliance system, can you think of any other appliance system in the world that was that bad and yet is still in existence today or anybody's still using? Probably not. But what drove Invisalign to the point that it is today, even though it was so terrible and so many orthodontists got frustrated with it? Aesthetics. Well, not just aesthetics, but the patients banging on your door asking for it, right? So here you are as an orthodontist in 2003, Invisalign is not working at all. In 2004, you're so frustrated, you're pulling out your hair. 2005, you're like, that's it, I'm not doing this anymore. But yet you have patient after patient coming in and saying, I want Invisalign. Well, guess what? You're going to keep on trying, right? And that's really where Invisalign has been just brilliant in their marketing. 
and they're direct to consumer marketing because any other system, Lingual included, you get in there, you're working a little bit harder, you get frustrated with it, you're like, that's it. You're not saying to yourself, I don't know what I'm doing, or I need to learn more about the system, or I need to continue working harder at it. You're like, I'm not going to use it anymore, right? Because patients aren't asking for it anyway. Patients don't even know it exists. Because one thing any, co- any lingual company has not done well is direct-to-consumer marketing. But with Invisalign, even though we had the same frustrations early on, patients were banging down our doors for it. So we kept at it. We kept at it. We kept at it. We learned how to use it. We understood the biomechanics. Or awesome guys like Maz Mashiri and, 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 and Nico, you know, Jonathan Nikazis. I mean, they just kept at it and said, how am I going to use this piece of plastic to move this tooth? And eventually, we got to the point where we are today. Not perfect, but a lot better than it was back in 2005. You know, And I think that with Lingual, what's just happened is a lot of practitioners that have even attempted it have said, this is too difficult and given up because they're just not getting the patients banging down the doors asking for it. In my practice, it was a little bit different because I was so heavily marketing, not just for adults, but that I've got any solution for you. I kept at it, I kept at it, I kept at it, I learned how to do it. And although in the beginning it was a little bit more difficult to myself and you know any of my staff today, lingual is just as easy as labial, just as easy as giving an aligner to a patient and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because we've worked at it and we've gotten to that point. But right. it de- definitely takes a lot of effort to get there. Right. So I guess the big question is what happened to the Playboy bunnies? <laughs> so believe it or not, Craven finished them up pretty nicely. Um, so they did not transition into uh, to uh, uh, ceramic brackets, but it, that's I great that you actually have an same. answer to that. I thought they were just lost to, to history, oh, no, no, but no. that's that's I, hilarious. I, I've got their befores and after somewhere, but no. But seriously, um, what what are the ways in which offering lingual orthodontics leads to changes in your practice? I mean. How do you market it? How how do the fees compare? Do you have to change your systems in some way? Uh, you know, what for someone who's just kind of considering it? Absolutely. Great question. So I have not just done it myself, but I have firsthand knowledge of multiple young orthodontists who have stuck with it. And, you know, between mentorship with myself or Brandon Camello, some other guys out there that have been doing a lot of this. And and that's one thing. When you talk to a guy that does a lot of lingual, we geek out over it. So we're more than happy to help anybody and really, really sit through talking through cases, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, for us to get out there, that lingual is not just a viable option, but a great option and a great option to add is is, you know, the greatest thing in the world. And sometimes, you know, I lecture even in New York to doctors that are my quote unquote competition, the doctors down the block. And oftentimes they'll even say to me, they're like, why are you telling us all this stuff? And to me, we are not each other's competition. Our competition is the trip to Disney World. Our competition is, you know what, maybe Smile Direct Club. And, you know, we can start talking about nonsense like that because it is, you know, in my backyard in New York City, they've got a smile shop. But that's our real competition. Sharing with each other knowledge and really getting out there to the public that lingual is a viable option. It's a great option. It works. That orthodontics should be performed by an orthodontist because we have got more options for you. That to me is the greatest thing. So getting back to your question as far as a young orthodontist starting out, number one is to realize that, you know, you went through a residency that's two and now even three years 
And you stepped foot day one into that residency program and you look at your first orthodontic patient and you don't know Jack, right? And we sit there and we don't get frustrated with labial orthodontics. We learn it. We learn how to, how to do it. We learn how to tie it in. We learn how to do everything that we need to do to become an orthodontist and we're perpetually learning, right? But unfortunately, what happens sometimes is you get out of your program and we have a sense of, of ego and arrogance about us, let's be honest, right? Where we were top of our class in dental school and now we've sat through three years of orthodontics. Well, then I should be able to pick up a lingual orthodontic case and treat this as easily and as well as a labial orthodontic case. And that's just not the case, unfortunately. You know, you, the biomechanics are completely different. You've taken three years full time to learn how to do labial orthodontics, but unfortunately, a lot of orthodontists, once they're out, don't want to take even close to that time to learn lingual orthodontics, you know? And, and it's going to take not three years of full time, but it's going to take a lot of effort and energy that will be paid off in multitudes for sure, but it's going to take time for you to learn. And if you get frustrated during that time and you say, hey, you know what? I have an easier option. Boom. Let's throw an aligner at a patient. Then you're going to be like the majority of the U.S. orthodontist, which is totally cool. But then when a patient comes to you and says, hey, you know what? I don't want to do Invisalign. What are you going to offer them? So you're going to offer them ceramic brackets. They don't want ceramic brackets, right? And we talk about, hey, we're specialists. If we are truly specialists, in my mind, we should be able to offer our patients a solution that's that's going to fit not just with what is going to move their teeth, but what's going to fit in with their lifestyle. And so I've got my ceramic brackets, I've got my Invisalign, and I've got my lingual. And I cannot tell you how many patients come to me after having been to a ton of Invisalign consultations, and they're like, I cannot see myself being good about wearing these aligners. Or I cannot see myself having attachments on my teeth, or I cannot be trusted to take an aligner in and out every single day. And when I went to any of those other consultations and I said, hey, if I can't or won't do Invisalign, what are your other options for me? They all gave me clear braces on the front of my teeth, and I don't want that. And so for a young doctor that really wants to differentiate themselves, to me, it's not, hey, I do this appliance or I do that appliance. It's I do every appliance, and I'm going to figure out which one is going to work best not just for your malocclusion, not just for your profile, not just for your airway, but also for your personality and your lifestyle and everything else because you're a human being and we're going to treat the full package. And so for me in my practice, that has been the number one differentiator to be able to have a tool for every patient that walks through the door. All right. I want to back up a little bit to something you said. You mentioned that a lot of your patients moms and dads are in some sort of orthodontic treatment. Is that something that you actively work on in your practice is kind of converting those parents into patients? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. It's our favorite thing to do. (laughs) How do you do that? So it's kind of like, how much do we as orthodontists generally pay for our marketing budget per year, right? You have a captive audience in your practice and they're sitting on your chair and staring either at their phone or into space or at your TV or, or whatever else it is. I mean, they're there. 
And so for us in our practice, and you know, everybody talks about how do we create a bonus system and this and that, and we've got all of that kind of stuff. But separate from all of that is I will give any staff member that convinces a mom or a dad to have a consultation for themselves, 50 bucks, done, just, just there, right there, right? And, and that has been tremendous because mom and dad are sitting right there. And how many times do they somehow, within conversation, talk about their own teeth or point to their own smile? Not even saying I'm concerned or this or that, but, you know, sometimes it, it sounds a little crazy, but sometimes a mom will be like, yeah, you know, my teeth haven't really shifted that badly over the years. Well, my <laughs> staff will say, well, just like that, just like, well, and mom's like, really? And then they start looking at themselves and huh, they have. And my staff will say, well, you know, we, we can fix that really quickly and easily. It's not a very big deal. Why don't you, you know, come sit down and, and let's talk about it. Let's take some pictures and, and let's talk. And uh, it's, it's almost like a game in the office because they know that for them, it's an easy 50 bucks. For us, it's, it's a patient that's been coming and sitting in our office you know, for all these months, and there's no reason why, you know, they can't be in the chair right next to their son or daughter or whomever and, and be treated as well. Yeah, that's, I think that's great. I think that's something that I certainly could do a better job focusing on because you're right, we, we spend an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to get these people into our office. And then, you know, I think I'm probably not alone in maybe slacking off and trying to create these conversations with parents. I don't even think you're slacking off. I think like even myself, I was a little bit embarrassed a little bit, you know, in the beginning to actually like mom will, will say, yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not so happy with my smile and I'll leave it to, I used to leave it to my staff to say something because you're the orthodontist. You don't want to feel like a salesman, right? But yeah. what I generally will say is mom, you deserve this too. And right there, you're, you're not making it about, you know, you, you know, you're, you're, selling them anything. You're just saying, you deserve this too. If you've been thinking about it, we're going to, we're going to find a way to make it happen for you as well. You know, and oftentimes, you know, we'll, we'll have a mommy and me discount or, you know, something like that and, and help them out. But I myself have, have almost needed to get over myself and not do it in the sales many way, but just kind of say, we can do this for you as well. And a lot of times moms will say, oh, you know what? Kids come first and then me. And I'll say, you know, the one thing every mom that has ever been through treatment here has said to me at the end of treatment, their only regret is that they didn't do it sooner. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's and, for and, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And even to say to mom, you know what, we'll work, you know, you're paying for little Timmy now, no problem. Let's, let's, you know, really schedule out your payments or let's push it off till whenever, whatever it is, you know, you know, they're a good family, they're patients of yours, they're not running anywhere. You make it happen so that it's, she, you know, she, mom or dad can get started. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. Uh, you've lectured a lot for 3M on on lingual orthodontics, and I'm sure that you know many doctors have gained so much from you sharing your knowledge with them. But I'm wondering what you feel like you've learned from the experience of lecturing to your colleagues. Great question. So I love lecturing not because it's me in front of the room or any kind of you know ego trip. You know, there's a lot of ego involved with a lot of what we do. Um, I love lecturing because I love getting out there and learning from everybody else. And not just here in the U.S., but when you get the opportunity to go to other countries, you know, we tend to think, hey, in the U.S., we're the most advanced. No, we're not. <laughs> I'll be honest. The things that doctors are doing in, in Madrid, the things that doctor, doctors are doing in China, I mean, oh my goodness, they are doing stuff that I learn 
every single time I'm out in any of these countries. I mean, my, my latest and greatest that I love doing is retromolar tads right now. This is my new kick. And, you know, distalizing like class three situations. I'm distalizing the entire lower jaw. I mean, stuff like that that I've learned from amazing orthodontists in Madrid, for example. I mean, it is unbelievable. We often, you know, talk about, all right, who's your mentor? I would almost think more globally. It's not even about your mentor and your program here in the U.S. It's not even about your, co I mean, it's great. We've got amazing colleagues. We're learning a lot of stuff, whether it's on online Facebook forums and things like that. But if you can get out there and get out of the U.S. and see what doctors are doing all over the world, it's pretty impressive. It's really, really unbelievable, I would say. And if I think about some of the greatest stuff I've learned over the last five years, it's actually come from outside the U.S. Huh, that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah. I you know I certainly have never had much of that experience, but I think that's really cool. I mean, we often go on vacations out of the U.S., right? What if you tied it to some kind of meeting out there? You know, I mean, like I've got doctors that are now into lingual just because they came to a meeting in Paris two years ago, and they happened to really just want to go to Paris, so they stopped by the meeting for the tax deduction, and then they were kind of blown away by what a lot of the orthodontists are doing outside the U.S. and Europe and other countries. And now they're, they, they're knee-deep and lingual here in the U.S. and they're loving it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of us have the means. We go on, you know, we, we get out of the country from time to time. Sometimes when we're thinking CE, CE and, and things like that, you know, it's great what we do on the online stuff and the online forms, but we're kind of like uh, mixing the pool, you know, kind of like a mixed genetic pool because yep. we're all in this little bubble. And we keep on throwing the same things uh, across the pond at each other. But, like, get outside of that bubble and see what, what some of these guys are doing outside of the U.S. And it's pretty, pretty awesome. You've lectured primarily on, you know, lingual orthodontics. But I'm curious, if you had to give a lecture to orthodontists on another topic that you're passionate about, what would that be? So, I do lecture a lot on lingual. Lately, I've been doing a lot of lecturing on just running an aesthetic practice. And, you know, what an aesthetic practice pretty much means... Uh, to me is we actually don't use metal brackets. Um, part of what, you know, we use to differentiate ourselves. It's ceramic, it's Invisalign, it's, it's incognito or lingual. Um, and so we do lecture, uh, I have lectured a lot about that lately, especially here in the U.S. where it's, where, where it's not as popular to do lingual orthodontics, it's become more of an aesthetically oriented lecture, along with a lot of what we do with ceramics, you know, and, and what we can do with today's ceramics. You know, there's a little bit of a stigma surrounding ceramics, friction and all these other things. And none of that's really true clinically and in reality. So just what we do to market our practice uh, a little bit differently than, than the guys down the road. So there's, there's a lot about that. Um, I've also given a bunch of lectures recently on some practice management stuff, uh, our bonus system, um, pretty much, uh, anything and everything to young orthodontists. And that's really been my passion lately. Um, getting to the orthodontists that are a year, two years, three years out, because I've been hearing a lot from a lot of them about, unfortunately, how there's a little bit of, of a aura of, oh my goodness, the future is bleak for orthodontists. And, um, and I don't think it is at all. But I think the internet is an amazing, amazing tool. All of these Facebook forums, I mean, your podcast, things like this are fantastic. 
But sometimes kind of getting back to the little bubble of, of we get insulated within this, you know, even though we're now more inter, you know, within the US and, and within our Facebook groups, you know, it's, it's a little bit broader than what we used to be as, as just a local orthodontist, but we're still kind of like caught up in, in perhaps the same conversations over and over, you know, like, oh my goodness, Smile Direct Club, Invisalign, aligners, uh, do it yourself aligners. It's, it's killing us. What, what's the future of orthodontics? gonna look like and all of these kind of things. And I think that if we think back to why we got into this, right? Um, and, and, you know, obviously not just helping people and not just, you know, talking about uh, people's self perceptions and things like that, but we have an amazing, amazing gig. And there's always going to be a place for us as long as we act like specialists and as long as we differentiate ourselves. You know, there are those that want to get out there and talk about how, hey, you know what? All a patient cares about is aesthetics, and all you need to do is straighten those front six teeth because that is what the patient wants, and done. Unfortunately, getting that out there, especially on a more global forum, tends to perpetuate the demise of the specialty. And I found, and I'm sure, Lance, you found in your own practice, as soon as you actually educate a patient on what's happening beyond those six front teeth, 90% of the time, they're on board, right? I mean, I can't, especially in my New York City practice where I'm like 90, 95% adult, I always offer the adults the purely aesthetic option because, you know what? Do no harm. The patient, maybe he's got a severe class two, but... He's 45 years old, zero TMD. He's had that class two for years, doesn't give a darn about that class two. We're definitely going to talk about it, but do I offer only one option, which is, you know, orthognathics or two upper fours or, you know, something, or do I offer, hey, here's your options. We can straighten those six front teeth, you know, the crooked teeth that, you, that you're concerned about. We got you. We, we can do that. This is how long it'll take. These are the different things we can do, we can use to do that. But, let me tell you what else is going on in there and, you know, what we can do. I would yeah. say more often than not, I'm surprised that the patients are like, wow, I never knew that that was going on. Yeah, I want to do that. You know, so it's, yes, the public right now doesn't know what they don't know. That is absolutely true. And there is also a huge population of the public that does just want an aesthetic fix. But as a specialist, we can give them that aesthetic fix. At the same time, we're not going to do any harm. So to say that, hey, that's all the public wants, and if they only want that, then they can definitely get it with an at-home aligner. Well, I'll tell you about the patient that walked through my door today. Smile Direct Club patient went to the Soho. I mean, you take the, the train from my office 15 minutes, and you're at the Smile Direct Club Soho, what was a pop-up shop and then became so popular, they're now a permanent shop. Went there, had their teeth scanned. They got in the, uh, they got by email that, hey, you know what? In three aligners, we're going to close that diastema that you're concerned about, right? And thankfully, the patient was smart enough to say, looks pretty cool, but I'm going to go check with an orthodontist just to see, you know, if this is viable. <laughs> and they came to me, showed me the befores and afters, uh, you know, of what Smile Direct Club sent to them. And this was a slam dunk for us because I said, Wow, that's beautiful. Those four liners on the top are absolutely going to close that space you have in between your top front teeth. 
But look at the pictures that we just took and look at the scan that we just took. Your top teeth are right now directly against your bottom teeth. You've got almost a perfect bite when it comes to that. But if I'm going to close that space, your teeth are going to move back a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, how are your teeth going to move back if right now your bottom teeth are slamming right up against them? And it's like light bulbs going off in this patient's head. They're like, whoa, yeah, I totally get that. So tiny little change, right? Four liners, small diastema closure. We've all seen this, right? But now you start biting lower teeth into upper teeth. What happens to that diastema? Slams open again, right? So Smile Direct Club is going to give you that closure, but they're not looking at the big picture. They're not looking at this as a specialist would look at it. And they're not looking at the sequela of if I create that movement, what is it now going to do to your bite? And yeah. you know what? Patient had the scan already done, signed up on the spot. We're going to do some aligners, but we're also going to do a little bit of low P lower IPR, retract the lower incisors, close the diastema, done. But, you know, it's just like we don't have a bleak future. The future is kind of like what Dr. Waltuck said to me, right? Make your own destiny. We are at a point right now where we can make our own destiny. We can either start acting like specialists or we can, you know, pardon my French, but bitch and moan to each other about it consistently and, and just tell everybody the future is bleak and scare the young guys getting out of school right now instead of saying we have an amazing opportunity here. And we will continue to be a very strong specialty as long as we continue to act like specialists. That's awesome. Um, we've hinted a little bit at this uh, office that you opened in uh, Manhattan. And it sounds like that's a very different practice from the orthopedo practice that you uh, started off in. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and kind of how that practice runs. Absolutely. So New York City is, yeah, like you said, very, very different animal. You know, in New Jersey, we've got six chairs, plus a scan room, plus a consultation room, you know, your more typical ortho practice. Um, in New York City, we've got two chairs and a consultation room. Um, so we literally are running just two patients at a time. So we call it more of a boutique practice. Of course, you know, you can, you can imagine what the real estate costs in New York City to, to be there. And then it's not even just the cost of your, your lease, but, you know, whereas a typical orthodontist for whatever we're paying for our lease in Manhattan would probably have 10 chairs, I've got two. So when you start looking at what chair time costs you, it gets pretty dramatic. Fortunately, sure. though, you know, we, we can demand a higher fee in New York City. But we can only demand that higher fee because we do something completely different. So the, the genesis of it was we were doing a lot of lingual in my New Jersey practice. And a lot of the patients walking through the door um, were adults. And they worked in Manhattan. They were like, I wish you had a Manhattan office. You know, I can come during work hours. I can come lunchtime. I can come before work. I can come after work. Versus getting to us in New Jersey after having a full day in New York City and then fighting the traffic on the way home was tough for them. and. You know, it's just that conversation came up enough that I actually started entertaining the idea and started looking at spaces and found a general dentist that was looking to sell her practice. And so I bought her practice from her and actually resold her charts to some buddies of mine who are general dentists and share the lease. So I have two days a week in my New York City practice where I'm 
I've got the office and I'm doing orthodontics. And then the other three days a week, the general dentists are in there. We've got signage that kind of flips around. So it looks like a completely separate practice. And this way I can offset some of the uh, ridiculous costs of, of the lease. So we share the space essentially on different days. Um, but opened up pretty much from scratch, had a couple of the patients from New Jersey transfer over to the New York City practice and went heavy on online, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, uh, marketing specifically at the time lingual orthodontics. And that is by far, that has been by far the, the biggest, uh, uh, the biggest move, the biggest driver of, of patients walking through our doors. Um, you can imagine New York City, there's an orthodontist, not just on every corner, but you look at one high-rise building and there's multiple on every floor. And I wouldn't have even thought or entertained the idea of working in New York, of opening a practice in New York City, if I didn't have something that was completely niche versus what everybody else was doing. Right, right. But, you know, when, when you consider the... Uh, the mechanics of it, if I had a traditional practice running just Invisalign or ceramics, let's say, on two chairs, there's no way we would be able to survive. Having Lingual, the one thing that we've got is because not a lot of people do it, we can command whatever fee we want pretty much. And so when I consider even offering a patient Invisalign in New York City, they've got 2,000 general dentists and orthodontists that could do this Invisalign case and will do this Invisalign case for very little money, especially with Groupon and Living Social and all of those other various things. And so you can't command the type of money that, that would sustain a practice um, in New York City with two chairs when you're running those kind of fees. But right. with Lingual, you can pretty much you know ask a patient for a very fair fee because it's something that does take a lot more effort, took a lot of years to really understand how to do well, and is something that nobody else does. And so we can treat 25 patients a day in my New York City practice and make the same kind of profitability as we do in our New Jersey practice treating 100 patients a day. Huh, that's fascinating. Um, one other thing, you mentioned uh, online marketing and uh, Facebook and Instagram. And I noticed that you guys seem to be pretty active on Instagram, which I think is the, probably the one that people know less about compared with Facebook. I think most orthodontists are kind of coming around to Facebook. But tell a little bit about Instagram and, and how people should use that or, or what you found to be successful on that platform. So here I got to give a shout out to Dr. Dovi Prero because I would call him the king of Instagram. But I quickly learned a little bit from him and obviously put our own little spin on it. But what I f have found, and I think Dr. Perro has found this as well, as Facebook, I feel, is fantastic for patients that are currently in the practice, whether it's then, you know, through referrals of their friends and, you know, certainly for keeping the goodwill and the relationship between the practice and, and your current patients. Instagram has been an unbelievable draw for brand new patients that have had no contact with the practice before. So I will say that over the last, because we've now been actively, very, very actively measuring it, but over the last month, we've had 18 patients walk through our door and specifically on their intake form, right, Instagram as their referral source. 
Um, the way we use Instagram is in every possible way. I mean, really, it's, it's not just about the typical posts, but we have found the Instagram story to be really, really powerful. I had uh, last week a patient in my New York City practice that came in, made the appointment, and told us they had been to four different orthodontists for consultations over the last two years. And she had been following our Instagram story and said, I only want to be treated by Dr. Scholhoff. He's hysterical. I love your story. I want to be on your Instagram story, and I want to come and, and be treated. And of course, she was a same-day start. So it's How do you get been, them to follow your story? How do you get them to kind of engage initially with your Instagram? So it starts off with first even your typical posts. And when you do posts, you know, everybody knows with Instagram where you're going to hashtag a whole bunch of stuff. Instagram has a very, very new, amazing, powerful thing where they also have, I don't know if you've noticed on your stories, it's got your local, like for example, I'm in New York, it'll, it'll have that little bubble on top that says New York City. So if you actually tag, let's say your practice with New York City, there's a chance that if your, if your post is cool enough, it actually gets on the New York City stream. So that's been fantastic because we've gotten onto that stream already three times. And when you get onto the New York City stream, anybody within New York City that taps that little button and watches the stream now is watching you and oftentimes will then follow you. So that's been one newer way that we've been obtaining patients. Otherwise, it's we have uh, somebody on staff that actively goes out there and likes a lot of other Instagrams, right? So when you like their photos, they're like, who is this liking my photo? And they start looking at yours and hopefully they like you back. And, you know, through those kind of organic methods, you just slowly but surely build. We tend to now also start actively seeking out influencers. So influencers are, are, are potentials that have you know, a couple of thousand followers at least, definitely look for local influencers and then start liking a lot of their stuff. Sometimes they've got so many followers that even just liking them, you're not going to catch their attention. You actually try to then what we call direct message them. So I'll have somebody on staff direct message them and say, hey, love your stuff. Is there any chance we can get a shout out? A lot of them, this is their job. They will charge you for a shout out. But some of them, especially the newer ones, the local ones that are only, let's say, 10K followers, 20K followers, it'll be something reasonable. Some of them, it'll be, you know, 100 bucks. But you know what? You're reaching then 10,000 potential patients. So it's just been a relatively cheap and easy way to try to develop some, some marketing and, and, you know, just gain some momentum. So lots of different ways. I mean, we can talk about it for a while, but Instagram... <laughs> has been such a boon, seriously. The other thing that I find that patients are always saying is they love the personality of our office. You know, when we talk about differentiation, right? So, you know, we've got the fact that we do lingual is a huge differentiator, the fact that we're very aesthetically oriented, big differentiator. But a lot of orthodontists on their website talk about we are warm and friendly and treat everybody like family, right? And oftentimes, you know, lecturers will say, that's not a differentiator. Every orthodontist does that. Nobody's going to say, hey, I treat my patients like garbage. But what happens with Instagram is you're actually bringing the patient into your office before they step foot in the office. So when you're doing fun stuff, you know, and so like you guys can now go to our Instagram and you can see just some of the videos and things like that. But on a daily basis on our story, we do even, even more silly things, you know, and they see my personality. They see my staff's personality. We'll, we'll put up, you know, funny videos and things like that because we're a little bit less careful because it goes away after 24 hours. 
So we'll do silly things and we won't mind our ego so much because it's not going to be there for much more than 24 hours. But that has been a tremendous draw for the patients because they're seeing that fun and that personality and the culture of the office. And they're like, I want to be there. Yeah, I've just started kind of looking into Instagram a little bit more for our practice and and, and looking at your page and some others. um, It definitely seems like there's some potential there. I think you've given some great information on that. So uh, thank you for that. My pleasure. So we're going to jump in here. We this conversation is just is just flying by. I, I've got more questions, but we should probably wrap things up here. We're going to go into this Elevate Express eight round. I'm going to give you eight questions, quick questions. We're going to get some quick answers, and then we'll wrap things up. Cool. Adam, what's your go-to treatment for full step class twos? Forces currently. Cool. What's I your say- stand? No, go ahead. <laughs> I know. I know it's quick questions, but. I say currently because there's, there's some things on the horizon um, that, uh, that I'm actually actively working on that I think is going to be the new go-to. Cool. Uh, what's your standard retention protocol? I'll generally do a fixed 3 to 3 lower with an overlay Essex upper and lower. Cool. Who are your role models? I mentioned Dr. Sheldon Waltuck, uh, my Instagram role model, Dr. Dovi Prero. I will say everybody on, uh, on any of these amazing Facebook forums, uh, you, Lance, I mean, Elevate Orthodontics, love it. And I just also haven't even mentioned, but I love the fact that you said elevate, right? When we talk about, you know, the bleak orthodontic horizon, I like that you're trying to, you know, get us out of that and uh, elevate the entire profession. Awesome. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? I've got to go with incognito. <laughs> I Dang. definitely have to. It's changed the face of my practice, so I've got to. Perfect. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Costa Rica. I think that's the second one I've heard, Costa Rica, in, in, in the last week doing these. Oh, so I've, I'm going to have to get down there. Yeah. What's one great book you've read recently? Oh, my goodness. I generally read Airplane Trash. <laughs> I call it airplane trash, just thrillers and, and things like that. I know it's so in vogue now to read the, the self-help stuff and, and things like that, but lately just haven't had the time. So I'm going to admit airplane trash, take your mind out of everything we do every single day and actually enjoy yourself. Perfect. What bracket system are you currently using? Clarity Advanced, Incognito, and Invisalign. Cool. And what's one area of orthodontics that you want to learn more about in 2017? I'm going to go with airway. Airway. Okay, good. Uh, Adam, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, giving all this great information to our listeners. Thank you for having me. And Lance, thank you for doing this. Uh, this, It's my pleasure. This has been a great interview and I hope to talk again soon. Ditto. Thanks so much. Have a great night. You too. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.